Well, we are in the second week of our series on the book of James. Uh, James is answering the question, what does born-again life look like? Or in other words, how does faith act? And last week we saw how faith acts. One of the ways that faith in Christ makes action, a particular type of action possible. And uh, Derek talked to us about how faith creates a situation where people can have joy in the midst of trials. And this week, uh, I feel bad because um, this pa- the, the back half of James chapter 1 is so full. Uh, man, it, it's so full. James says so much with so little words. He's such an economist uh, when it comes, with his, comes to words. He explains in this passage the relation between temptation, circumstances, and morality. He explains in this passage the human psyche, the evolution of sin, the nature of God, the new birth, how the gospel changes human action, the role of silence in our lives, the Christian's relationship to the living word, the relation between hearing God's word and seeing and acting God's word, how the scripture relates to our identity, perseverance in the Christian life, what it means to be blessed, the nature of true religion, the nature of false religion, the pursuit of holiness, and the ministry of mercy. So, <laughs> buckle up. I'm going to be here for a while. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what that means is that we have to leave a lot out. Um, and so when we're working in just bits of this passage tonight, uh, you're going to say, but what about this? What about this? What about this? How does this relate to this? You're skipping stuff. And that's true. But it's a good thing because what it'll do is open up avenues of thought for all of us, questions that need to be asked over and over again. And I hope that's what it'll do. The question that's, that we're really looking at tonight, the question that's how does faith act is is presupposed by a, a few questions, and these are the questions that we have to wrestle with. What do you need to know about yourself to become, to have a faith that acts, to have a faith that lives, a practical faith? What do you need to know about yourself? Second, what do you need to know about God? And third, what do you need to know about true religion? So that's what we're going to ask. What do you need to know about yourself? What do you need to know about God? And what do you need to know about religion? To have a faith that acts. And the answer is that James is giving us is you need to know something about the psyche or the psychology of sin. You need to know that God is a shadowless God. And you need to know true religion. Okay, so we're going to take those in turn. The psyche of sin. What do you need to know about yourself? What do you need to know about yourself? One of the questions that the commentators, if you read any, any books about James, are constantly asking is, is James a book of Proverbs or prose? So a lot of commentators will say that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. If you've read through James, you'll see that sometimes James feels like a bunch of statements that are not related to one another. So a bunch of wise sayings. Wisdom is at the center of what he's, what he's doing. And it looks like it's a bunch of segments that aren't related. They're like the Proverbs. It's displaying for you brief snippets of what it means to be wise. And you can see that in our passage tonight because we picked up in the middle of a paragraph, if, if you have a Bible out. Um, in verse 13... Let no one say when, is he, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, last week, Derek ended on verse 12, which says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And this is one of the key places that, scho- that scholars and commentators say, is it Proverbs or prose? Because between 12, verse 12, which says, 
Blessed are you under trial. In verse 13, which says, don't let anybody say when they're tempted, you're being tempted by God. A lot of people say there's no connection here. There's no connection between these verses. This is Proverbs. It's just a break. It's a new idea, right? And the beautiful thing is that we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose. This book is both Proverbs. It's proverbial and it's prose. It's a, it's a book of, the say, of wisdom sayings that are connected. And uh, one, of the ways, one of the ways you can see that is at the heart of our passage tonight. And that's this, that when, when James said, Blesses, Bless the man who, who uh, remains steadfast under trial. And then in verse 13 says, Let no one say that he is tem- when he is tempted that he is being tempted by God. That the word trial and the word in verse 13, tempted, are the same word in the Greek. In the original language of the, of the New Testament. They're not different words. They're just a little bit different grammatical forms of the same word, you see? It's not a, he's, it's not a new idea. He's, bu- he's building on something here. And so we, we have to ask, what does he mean by trial in verse 12 to understand what he means by temptation in verse 13? What does he mean by trial in verse 12? Well, the word is the word pirasmon. And uh, what it means is it's, it's, it doesn't actually refer just to suffering. So you might think when, when he says, count it all joy when you go under trials, you think, of course, he means, he means suffering, he means pain. A, a loved one dies, uh, you get fired from your job, he means something like that. But actually the word refers to any circumstance, any new circumstance that comes into your life. And one of the ways you can see that is because just before this in verses 9 and 10, he's talked about the trials of the rich and the trials of the poor. And you see what he's saying? When you become rich, when you win the lottery, when, you're, when your relative dies and you, and you get a boatload of cash, that comes with a particular type of temptation. You see, prosperity is also a circumstance that you can fall under sin. Or, or if you become poor, if you lose your job, if, if you get kicked out of your flat. Adversity is also a circumstance where you can fall, fall under sin. What, what James means by the word, word trial in verse 12 is the outer test. Sorry. The outer test. Any circumstance. Any circumstance that comes into your life. Anything and everything. So then when we come to verse 13, when he uses, but don't say that God is the one that's tempting you. What does he mean? He's, he's referring to a corresponding inner temptation that gives rise when you experience outer objective trials you see what he's saying every circumstance in your life every single circumstance there are objects money power all sorts of things these are outer tests that give rise to an inner temptation the inner temptation creeps up from inside of you when you when you're placed in particular circumstances every circumstance comes with its own possible temptation that's what he's saying um, you know, let me illustrate it like this. Um, well, let me say this before I illustrate it. In verse 14, what, what is he saying is at the base of those inner temptations? Look, at me, look with me at verse 14. He says, Each person is tempted, inner temptation, when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So he's saying at the heart of all sin, at the base of every temptation, is not something outside of you, but it's something inside of you, you see. Now, there are a number of you who are uh, 
lawyers or accountants or other stuff like uh, investment bankers or and I know uh, many of you have had to take exams to get certifications in your job right to continue on accountants particularly it's like 12 or 15 exams or something like that that you have to take now if you go take that exam and you totally bomb it you I mean you utterly fail it right you might you might you might find yourself in a circumstance where you want to come and you want to say look to the institution that gave it to you, to the, to the guy that wrote the exam, I, I would have never failed this exam if you wouldn't have given me an exam. You see, I, would, I wouldn't have done poorly except for the fact that you felt like you needed to test me. Right? Now, if you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with yourself, would you, you know the real reason why you failed the exam? The, the, it's not the exam's fault. The, what did the exam do? The exam exposed you, you see. The exam uncovered something about you that you were that you were ignorant. That you were ignorant about something, about whatever was on the exam. You see, the, it's not the exam's fault. The exam exposed you. And the distinction that James is making for us is that there's a difference between the circumstance of sin and the cause of sin. You see, the circumstance of sin is not the cause of sin. There are all sorts of circumstances in your life, and these are trials, these are tests, but they don't cause you to sin. No matter what it is outside of you, it's not, it's not the fault of the object. It's, it's your fault, is what he's saying. It's our fault. It's my fault. Circumstances don't cause you to sin. You only sin, he's saying, when you, when you want to. You only sin when you want to. Sin is a product of your utmost desires, you see. Now, this distinction between the circumstance of sin and the cause of sin sets James up to give the most sophisticated psychology of sin that's ever been produced. The most sophisticated psychology of sin, right here in, in the first century, in a very ancient place. Um, where, do, where does bad behavior come from? That's the root. Where does bad behavior come from? And people, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? Now, James is offering you something here that you don't get in any of the extremes of uh, current visions in our, in our current culture about where bad behavior comes from. So the, the most prominent way our culture views the source of bad behavior, the route of bad behavior, is what we would call the late modern collective way of thinking about it. Uh, and it's it's simply this. You, you know this. You've seen this. Ba- a pers- when a person behaves badly, they do it because they're a product of their environment. Right? It, it comes from two places. It comes from nature and nurture. Right? So their their biology tends them in a particular direction, a particular type of way of acting badly. And then their environment, the way they were brought up, the way they were raised. And so, I mean, statistics will, will show much of this that if you grow if a person grows up in a very broken home it's very it's more likely that they're going to create a broken home uh, they're going to make bad decisions in life and create a broken home right this is the, this is the way, where does bad behavior come from it comes entirely from your environment entirely from from nature and nurture your biology and how you were raised um, this this idea we could call it is the most progressive idea of saying because ultimately, ultimately, if you go down the road far enough, it makes you say, it, it's not the person's fault. They're a product of nature and nurture. 
they behave badly because of how they were raised. So that's, that's one extreme. The other extreme that we see in our culture, the more conservative extreme, the, the way that our tradition probably tends more towards, is to say the total opposite. Uh, sin is never anybody's fault but your fault. Bad behavior doesn't come from any place else for, but from you. Um, so the first approach is completely collective. Bad behavior is a product of collective environments. The second approach is completely individual. Bad behavior comes from nobody but the single individual person, you see? The two extremes. James' psychology of sin is that both are true. James cuts, he diagonalizes it. He says you can't have one or the other. You have to take both. You have to take both. At the, now, how does he do it? How does he do it? He says that in verse 14, at the core of sin, the base of what sin is, he, he uses the word desire. Desire. Desire gives rise to sin. Now, what's desire? Desire is the answer to the question, what do you want? What do you want? What do you wish for? That's what it means to desire. What do you want? What do you wish for? And, uh, you know, some of you right now, you want chocolate cake, right? Some of you want the sermon to be over. That's a true story. Uh, some of you want to sleep in tomorrow and not go to work. That's probably all of us. Uh, and that, that's, that word, desire, meaning I want chocolate cake, I want to sleep in, I want the sermon to be over, that, there's a specific Greek word for that. And it appears 61 times in the New Testament. Desires all over the New Testament. But that's not the word that's here. Oh, it's a different word. It's, James has attached a little bitty, uh, oh gosh, I've just gone blank. What do you call the thing that goes before a word? Not a pronoun, but, huh? Prefix, thank you, a prefix. He's, terrible. He's attached a, a little prefix to the front of this word desire. The little prefix, epi. So he's saying, it's not just desires that make you sin, but it's epi-desires. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference? And epi, epi literally is the prefix that means before. So it literally says, these are the desires before your desires. And this word desire is not in the plural, it's in the singular. So it's literally the desire before desires, you see? See the difference? It's not, I want chocolate cake, I want to sleep in, I want the sermon to be over. It's something that comes, is antecedent to all of those things. It's, a de- it's something deeper down that causes sin. A deeper down aspect of your personality. Um, what is it? What's an epi-desire? It, it's this. Y- you desire to have a spouse, perhaps. Epi-desire is I want to be known and loved. You see? Your desire to have a spouse is flowing out of something, in other words. And it's flowing out of the deeper desire, the desire, the desire I want to be known and loved. You see the difference in desire and epi-desire? Um, look, there are two things to learn here. There are two things to learn. The first is that epi-desires, the epi-desire that James is talking about isn't, isn't going after individual things. It's not going after individual objects like cakes and jobs and spouses 
and circumstances, whatever's out there in front of you in circumstances, it's the ultimate desire to be fulfilled. It's the ultimate desire to be, to be ultimately happy, to have joy. Um, one of the ways to illustrate this is that Blaise Pascal, the great uh, French mathematician and theologian, you don't see those two put together much anymore. Um, he, um, he, he, he talked about this idea in his famous book called The Pensée, which just means thoughts. And um, he talked about the desire that someone has for death. And today we, we call that suicide. Um, he, he, he's, you'll hear in this quote I'm about to read the difference between the epi-desire and the desire. There's a desire, there's a desire in this quote for suicide, but there's an epi-desire. And see if you see it. All men seek... All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means someone employs, they all tend to the same end of happiness. Happiness is the motive of every action of every human being, even of those who desire to commit suicide. Uh, You see what he's saying? You You can have a bad desire, pursue a bad object, like death, suicide. But underneath that, he's saying there's actually an epi desire. An epi-desire that originally was good, and that's the desire to have happiness. You see, suicide, he's saying, is, is, a, route, is a route to end the misery, the possibility of a future happiness. The, the second thing to see about this is this. Sin, in other words, is not just rule-breaking. Did you think so? Sin is not just rule-breaking. Sin is not just breaking the Ten Commandments. It's something much, much more and much deeper than that. Much deeper. You see, rule-breaking involves knowing the rules. And what James is doing is he's reaching underneath your intellect. You see? He's saying, sin doesn't start in your intellect. It doesn't start in you thinking, I know the rule and I know I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to obey it. It doesn't start there. It goes, it's somewhere, it starts long before you ever even know the rules. You see? He's saying it starts, it starts deeper down. The, the way the Bible talks about it is that rule breaking starts in your head, but sin creeps up from the heart. Sin starts from a motive that, that exists long before you ever know the rules or break the rules. And you can see this in the way Paul distinguishes the law and the gospel, right? Paul says, Paul says, it's not as if when I confront the law and I, and I see myself exposed before the law, I read the Ten Commandments and I know and I see who I truly am. It's not as if I can turn towards the law and say, finally, finally now, I'm a sinner because I've read the rules. No, the, the rules that came much later in life, life did nothing but expose who you already were. You see, sin is not just about rule breaking, it's about something much, much deeper than that. You sin because you want to. That's what James is saying. Now, James completely confirms for us then the conservative way of thinking about bad behavior. Where does bad behavior come from? It comes from you. It's your fault. It's my fault. He's affirming that. Absolutely, it's your fault. There's nobody guilty but you. That's the, that's the first thing. He, he affirms the conservative narrative. But there's another thing. The second thing, how does desire become sin? How does it become sin? Now, did you catch the metaphor? It's kind of difficult on the first time you read it. Let me, let me read it again. Each person is tempted when he is lured 
and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, did you catch the metaphor there? The metaphor that uh, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed, that desire then conceives, and then it gives birth, and then it grows up, and then it becomes that. Do you see what he's saying? The movement from desire to sin is a, is a sexual encounter. That's the metaphor he's using. He's using a very similar word to the Proverbs chapter 5 when it talks about lady folly coming in as the seductress. In other words, these fundamental desires for fulfillment and happiness are seduced by objects of desire. And then that seduction becomes a conception. In other words, it's saying it, the metaphor is that someone, your desire goes, goes to bed with evil. And then it gives birth. It gives birth in action. You actually do something. And that doing something is sin. Ah, but wait, it doesn't end there. Did you catch the rest? Then sin grows up. It gives birth and then it grows up. And, it get, and, and out comes death. You see what he's saying? You see what he's saying? It, the conservative narrative is absolutely true. It's your fault. It's my fault. We're guilty. And the progressive narrative... See what he's saying? When you sin, it gives birth and it grows up into death. You see, this is, this is exactly what happened in Genesis 3. Eve had an ultimate epi-desire to become God. She ate of the fruit. And the action of sin gave birth to curse. The curse of death. You see, you see what he's saying? He's saying that when you sin, it affects everything. It, it grows up out of you. It's like casting a shadow. And ultimately that shadow reaches and reaches and reaches until there's utter darkness of death. It affects everybody. Family. Person-to-person relationship. Your relationship to every object in the world. It's all affected. You see, they're both. it's your fault and you're a product of your environment. This is why in the Old Testament God can, can talk about bearing down on the sons the iniquity of the fathers. You see, sin casts a shadow, and it's not just a shadow that's on you. It affects everyone and everything that you touch. It's it's nature, it's nurture, and it's your fault. That's what James is saying. You see the sophistication? How modern a psychology of sin. How sophisticated. Now, uh, look, at at the base of who you are, your epi-desires, your utmost desires, the desire below all your desires to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. James is not saying that these are bad. One of the ways we know this is because this very verb is spoken of God almost 52 times throughout the Scriptures. God desires. This is part of it. This isn't bad. It's not bad to have... You see what he's saying? Tim Keller puts it this way. Sin is not wanting bad things, but wanting things badly. Sin is not wanting, is not just wanting bad things, but it's wanting things badly. You see, it's, it's letting your epi-desires for happiness, fulfillment, and joy be placed upon an object that can't hold. It's, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's wanting something so 
badly that you make it evil. That James is not coming down on living with desire. He's coming down on letting desire become idolatry. Now, this is at the base. This is at the core of all human sin. What do do we do about it, secondly? What do we do about it? What can be done about this? And his answer for us is that you have to see the nature of God. You have to see the nature of God if you want to change. You have to see the nature of God. Now, look, many, there have been so many philosophers in the past that have seen this, this idea that sin, bad behavior, ultimately is something that comes up from our desires. And there have been all sorts of ways to deal with it. What do you do about it? There's been all sorts of ways. But the two, the two kind of extremes, the two most common, that both appeared in the ancient world and appear today in the modern world, the first is the Stoic, the Stoic way. And the Stoic way says this, if desire is our ultimate problem, then the answer is that you get rid of desires. You get rid of desires altogether. Uh, there was a guy that lived about the same time as Jesus named Epictetus. And uh, he had this whole book called The Discipline of Desires. And he said, let the cardinal virtue of self-control come over you. Discipline all your passions, all your desires. Do not let desire have an effect on your action. You don't act according to what you want, but according to what you rationally conclude to be the correct way. Now, a lot of people in different Christian traditions in the past have adopted this approach, and what they've done is concluded that the only way to protect ourselves from letting our desires run wild is to separate. Separate from society. Separate from the world. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, right? It's to completely separate, right? But this is impossible, this is impossible. You can't walk out of your door without being confronted with objects of desire. You can't. There's no way. There's, this, isn't, this is not a possible route. The other opposite route from the Stoic route, to deny all your desires, to say desire is a bad thing, the opposite route that's especially prominent in modern society is hedonism. What does hedonism say? Hedonism says the total opposite. Don't deny your desires. Your desires are your identity. Your, your, your desires define exactly who you are. Don't ever deny your desires because if you do, you're denying who you really are. Let your, let your desires flow. Pursue, your, pursue the pleasures you want to pursue, right? It doesn't matter if this is, and pertains to sexual ethics or economics or social ethics or anything. Let, you are what you want. And this is the opposite extreme, but the Christian way. The Christian way. It says no to both. The Christian way says no to both. It's not stoic. James, nowhere in the scriptures are you told to get rid of passion, to get rid of desire. Fifty-one times in the New Testament, the word desire, wish, or will is coupled with the subject God. God desires. You see? The problem's not having desires. God has desires. Nor do you go the modern way, the individualistic way. And embrace desires exactly as they are, completely unchanged. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. So the Bible both recognizes that there are bad desires, there's a bad way of desire, but that desire itself, having desire, is good. So what is James asking us to do? What is James asking us to do? He's asking you to see this, that the promise of the gospel is to change your desires. 
The promise of the gospel is not to get rid of your desires, but to change your desires. Now, uh, at the beginning of the great book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, he uh, writes that, I do not know myself until I know God. And I do not know God until I know myself. And that's exactly what James is getting at. What What he's telling us here is that if you want to change your desires, if you want to know who you truly are, if you want to be exposed in order to be rebuilt, you have to see God in order to see yourself, and you have to see yourself, who you truly are, in order to see God. And he does it in two ways. The first way, if you see, as he says, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, this is a confusing passage, but what's he saying? He's saying, whenever you're tempted, don't say that God is the tempter. Why? Because God cannot, by nature, tempt anyone. Why? Well, because God desires, but he only desires the good. And so God can never come down and make people desire evil, desire sin. God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil desires. Never say that. That's against God's nature. This is who God is. He can never desire anything but the good. So he wants you to see God's nature. The second thing uh, that God's nature is that he can't be tempted because he only desires the good. The second thing he wants you to see about God is that he is the shadowless God. He is the father of lights. He's not the father of shadows. Now look with me in verse 16 and following. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, what does he mean by this? James has a, has a geocentric view of the world, okay, just like all the biblical writers did. And what he's saying here, geocentric meaning the earth, not the sun, is at the center of the universe. What he's saying here is that God is the creator of the great luminaries, the sun, the stars, the moon. He's the creator of all these things. And that what, what it looks like, the, the phenomena of looking up into the sky during the day and watching the sun, you know, if you don't do anything all day and just watch the sun, what does it look like it does? It looks like it moves, doesn't it? It moves across the skyline. And as it moves across the skyline and it starts to reach the outer edge of the skyline, it starts to create a shadow. It starts to cast a shadow over the edge of the land. You see what he's saying? Don't suppose that God casts shadows. What? What does that mean? It means that the sun is constantly changing. It's moving all day long. God doesn't move. God doesn't cast shadows. He doesn't, he doesn't go across the tip of the horizon. He doesn't change. He's changeless. That's what it's saying. You see, put the two together. God's nature is that he only desires the good. He does not desire sin. And God cannot be changed. He does not move. He cannot be changed. He's completely unlike you. You desire one thing one day, one thing the next. He, you see what he's saying? He's drawing you to see that before him, you're, you're not like this. You're, you're, you vary, you waver. He, he's asking you to stand in Isaiah chapter 6 before the throne room and say, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. I change, I falter. God, I, am not, I do not have the nature of God. That's the distinction he's drawing. Now finally, how do you, how do you become something different? 
How do you become something different? Very briefly, just a couple minutes. How do bent and broken epi desires become something else? And the answer is in verse 18. Now, before I read verse 18 in closing, uh, Martin Luther, the great Reformation theologian uh, that kind of started the Reformation, he uh, said that the book of James is the epistle of straw, he called it, which he, by which he meant it's like, uh, it's, a, it's like the last straw that breaks the camel's back. In other words, he's saying James teaches nothing but works righteousness. It's, Luther wanted to rip, did you know that Luke, Martin Luther wanted to rip the book of James out of his Bible? And he did. Um, he, called it the, he, he called it the epistle of works righteousness. There's no gospel in it. And he was completely wrong. Martin Luther, he was completely wrong about this. And we see it, we see it in verse 18. Read verse 18 with me. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, oh my, this, this is what he's saying. You can translate it this way. By his own desires, he rebirthed you or us by the word of truth. By his desire, he rebirthed you by the word of truth. What's the word of truth? What's the word of truth? You, you see it? The word of truth? In, in the book of John, at the very beginning, John says, In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh, who was God. This very word, this logos, is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. You see what he's talking about here? By God's own desires, against for a, for a people whose desires were completely bent, he gave you rebirth by the logos, the word of truth, the, the God-man. That's what he's saying, the God-man. Look. How do, you, how do you get your desires to change? How do you become new? How do you become whole? How does faith act? The God who could not be tempted by nature became the God who was tempted in every way as we are, except without sin. You see? The God who could not change, the shadowless God who could not be affected by the shadows of the sun, he put himself by choice under the ultimate shadow, the shadow of the curse. You see, on the cross, the ultimate shadow came over Jesus. Total death. You see what he's saying? He he became death precisely at the point where humans cast their ugliest shadow of sin, of misplaced desires. He, He bore it on his body. The God whose ultimate happiness, ultimate joy, whose epi-desire cannot be bent. Can, he cannot be made sad. He, he cannot ever be unfulfilled. He became a God-man who for the joy set before him, let all the joy be sucked out of him. He, he became everything we could never be. A human who was tempted, yet without sin, you see. You see why he wants you to see the nature of God? And then see the gospel. He, he wants you to look at the nature of God. The unchanging, untemptable God. And then look at you. And then look at the God man. Who became just like you. But never succumbed to temptation. 
Chalmers, we'll close with this quote, uh, Thomas Chalmers, the great Scottish preacher, preached a great famous sermon that most of you have probably come across at some point in your life called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he asked the question, how, does pe- how do people change? How do you get new desires? How do you get desires for Jesus Christ that make you act differently? And this is what he said. There's only two ways a person can overcome a deep desire for the evil things of this world. Either by overcoming the desires of the heart by their own willpower. By leaving behind this world and going behind a closed door and hiding. By avoiding all circumstances of temptation. That's one way. Or by setting in front of their face another object, even God himself, as a more worthy object of their desire. If you want to stop wanting the things that lead to death in your life, you have to want Jesus more. Now, that's an introduction. The rest of the book of James is how you start to inculcate new desires in action. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of James and him teaching us something of how faith acts. We ask now, oh, that you would cultivate a new desire in us, the desire to have Jesus himself, to see the beautiful face of Christ more than the things of this world, and that that would begin to shape a little bit of who we are. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.